Hi and welcome back to the Dead Ball Area podcast. This week we're going to talk about the second round of the Tier 1 Autumn Internationals. Now, there's quite a lot to get through, so I'm going to start with England versus Australia, but I'm also going to focus on Wales versus Georgia and uh, also Scotland versus the All Blacks. Um, now, England versus Australia, I think, was a really interesting game for a number of reasons. Now, obviously, there's a lot of controversy around the refing decisions and also Chica's behaviour and whether or not fans uh, were disrespectful to him. But I think if we look solely at the game, um, it comes down to a few key components of Australia's game. Um, the first being composure. Now, Australia definitely created chances, but they failed to convert them into tries. If you think they entered the 22 four times and England entered eight times, scored four times, and Australia came away with six points. So there's a massive difference in um, how efficient they are at finishing those chances and what they get out of those chances. Australia getting two three-point penalties, whereas England come away with four tries. Um, and that's a big, big, big point. Um but they definitely convert. They definitely made chances, but failed to convert them. And I think the Corbitti try is a, is, a, is a perfect example of that. Like first of all, it's, it's a fantastic strike move. Splits England's defence wide open. They had no clue what was going on there, and, and it's a pre-planned move. So where are his support runners? Fantastic line break, perfect opportunity to score. Where are the support runners? They know where the line break is going to be. They know where the execution point is. They know where the stress point in the defensive line is. They know he's going to come on. Bills inside and try and break between uh, Farrell and uh, I think it was Slade at that point or it might have been Joseph. But either way, they know where it's going to be. So why does he not have a left and right option um, once he's made line break? You know, Hooper, Genia, Foley and Hodge on the right must have known where that line break was, was going to be focused. So somebody should have been able to get on his inside. Now Foley gets there eventually, but... Um, once he's slowed down and taken the inside line. I, I just think there should have been more support earlier. Um, so straight away, they end up having to recycle, which, which gives England a chance to scramble. So they've, they've created a fantastic first phase scoring opportunity, which they don't finish. And then they have to recycle the ball, which gives England a, a chance to compete for the ball and slow it down, allows them to reset the defence, although it's very fractured. Um, so that's the first thing. That's, that slight lack of composure in making sure they finish. But then off the next phase, um, just the lack of composure in execution. Like Stephen Moore's a perfect example here. If he holds his depth, he can latch onto Corbini and he can drive him through the contact. So all it takes is two paces back just to be that little bit unselfish and not be the person wanting to have the ball. Corbini's coming around the corner, a huge amount of pace. Moore's running a short line, trying to take the ball. They collide. Yes, I think he impacts on Rob Shaw. I think he hits Rob Shaw's right shoulder and the referee deems that, rightly or wrongly, he deems that as obstruction. The point I'm making is it could have been avoided by just being a little less selfish, holding more holding his depth by two paces. He could have latched onto Corbett. He could have powered him through the contact <clears throat> and there'd have been no discussion about it being a try. He would have been over, he would have scored. Rob Shaw was not stopping him if he hadn't been impacted and he certainly wouldn't have stopped him if he'd had a second man latching on and hammering him through the contact. So, you know, they go from a perfect scoring opportunity to just panicking and, and, and wasting it. And then, you know, second example is Daly's uh, try. So, yes, okay, there's discussion about whether or not it was out, but let's look at what Australia did in lead up to that. Um, Simmons tries to offload in contact to Ben McCalman. The go to ground, the ball spills forward. England clear their lines. Don't hit touch, 
Beal and Kovetti, sorry, Beal and uh, Karevi clean the ball up. Karevi goes on a fantastic run. He breaks tackles, flies up. It, it was a try. All he needed to do was slow down on that last contact point and give a two-handed pass to Kurdrani. But instead, he goes out the back. It goes too high. Kurdrani spills the ball. England pick it up, counter, kick the ball long. We end up with a try down the other end. So it's completely avoidable, but it's just that lack of composure at a key moment that puts England under a lot of pressure. Now, I do think the ball is out, um, but regardless, Bill should have shut that down. There's no real excuse. It's just one minute of insanity. They go one end, give the ball away, go the other end, don't shut down the England uh, the England chasers. All Bill had to do was just follow that ball until it was in touch and be 100% sure, and that try would have been avoided. And I think that's a, you know, that's... That's an issue. And then you put on top of that the yellow cards and they've done all the hard work weathering those yellow cards and they give away a try like that for free. You know, regardless of the fact they were almost 20 minutes down to 14 men and at some point 13 men, they came away three points, well, even three points, three points. And then they give a really soft trial away off of their own mistake. And, and that's a big issue. That's a big issue. Leading into that, uh, and the lack of composure, um, I also think they tactically got it really, really wrong. Um, so their tactics and game management on the day, I think, in, in wet conditions was was really misguided. Um, so the day before, looking at the weather and looking at the fact that Adam Coleman was out, I, I knew it was going to be raining on I knew Adam Coleman was out. And pretty much at that point, I felt England would win the game because... I knew England would come out of a specific game plan to play the conditions, and I didn't think Australia would be able to do that. I don't think they had. I didn't think they had the kicking game to deal with a losing Coleman, um, and i.e. competing at the lineout, and uh, b to turn England um, and play the game in their areas in the same way they did against Wales the week before. Now, um, England had also done a lot of analysis in the. Um, in the lead up and that was apparent when they came out the first uh, they came out specifically to play the conditions but also to specifically target how Australia uh, arranged their um, their defence if you think uh, the first play England recycle Ford kicks a bomb crossfield to Foley on the right wing now that's a specific piece of analysis to target um, Foley and get England's chases now yeah, sure, they, they box kicked quite a lot, but those cross-field bombs, they remove the blockers and they allow, you know, if you box kick down um, a channel, you have to come through all that heavy traffic. If you kick cross-field onto an isolated defender, your chasers are coming through a turning back line. They're in a much stronger position. So those cross-field bombs were purely designed to do two things, and that is isolate Foley and isolate Bill. Um, and even if you can't get in the air because they're isolated, England were able to get tackles on and create a contact point behind the game line. So it was a fantastic piece of analysis, good piece of execution. So conversely, on the day, Australia needed to do, you know, needed to nullify that. England was all about getting forward. And Australia's um, phase play is to get on the front foot, drive and keep going forward. And if you look at against how they played against... Um, the All Blacks earlier in the year, 
front foot, front foot, front foot, front foot, score. But when you can't do that, you have to figure out a different way. And, you know, in that weather, they needed to be playing into the corners or playing long, chasing the kicks. But instead, they came up, they played on the gain line, they played short passes under pressure. And it's just it's just suicide, especially when they don't have a guy like Coleman there, who is instrumental to narrowing the uh, fringe defence. He's a big, strong guy, punches it over, he's aggressive. He can play the short balls off of Guinea, as we saw against Wales. And that narrows... That would have narrowed the English defence or at least kept the um, fringe ruck defence very, very honest. So they lost that and then they tried to play on the game line under pressure and it just gave that English defence something to hit and something to build momentum with and they could, they were able to build their, their rhythm. Not all the way through the game. There were moments when England um, were found wanting when Australia did get on the front foot but 90% of the time when Australia brought it to the line they were hit back either a short ball off of... Um, off of Guinea, didn't really make much ground through the forwards, or Australia were hit in midfield and spilled it. So you know it, it, it was it was difficult. And losing Coleman, they didn't have that guy who could narrow the uh, defence. And as good as Simmons and Enver are, you know they're just not dynamic on dynamic enough in the loose to replace a guy like Coleman who is just raw power. So is the final score representative of the game? Yes, I understand that England scored four tries in, you know, three tries in the last 10 minutes, four tries in the last 20 minutes. But um, when you take into account that Australia played 20 minutes with 14 men, sometimes with 13 men, I do think the fact that England were able to build such a large lead is representative of what that 20 minutes took out of the Australians. Um, All of these things add up to the full 80 minute performance and they were incredibly tired so they were incredibly tired leading into that last 10 minutes and obviously England were able to capitalise on that and, and also, you know, Australia were frustrated with the referee and the refereeing um, decision because statistically Australia were in the game so they had, you know, 56% of the um, possession and 54% of the territory and, yeah, that's kind of... A lot of it was middle of the park but, you know, it, it's about using the ball more effectively, more efficiently and they were unable to do so. Um, and England without the ball, waited, got the opportunities and took it. And the fact Australia were unable to capitalise on the momentum they created in that kind of, uh, that 10 minutes before um, the 70 minute mark, so the 60 to 70 minute mark, that was representative of the 20 minutes they went defend, you know, they went playing with 14 men, um, which they did really well, but it's fatiguing for the team. And I think that's why it's representative. I think that's why the final score is representative of the game, because Australia paid the price for their own misdemeanours. Um, England, I thought, played very well. I think they came out with a game plan and they stuck to it. And that was um, that was to play as much in the Australian half as possible or at least to kick to get on the front foot. They took their chances and I think anyone being critical of that is really misguided about what the game of rugby is about, which is scoring more points than the other person and how you do that where you do that in a game doesn't matter as long as you come out on the right side of the scoreboard at the end of the game so yeah I, I think they'll be pleased with that win um, I think it maybe would have been different on a dry day a lot closer um, but ultimately they made Australia pay for their own indiscretions and I think that's the, you know that's about as much as you can ask that the weather was appalling 
Um, and it's the kind of day, um, if you follow me on Twitter, I said this on Twitter, my dad said this to me, it's the kind of day you would take a 9-3 or a 9-6 win and accept that as a good win. Um, so to come out 30 points up um, is pretty monumental. So, so yeah, I think England can be pleased with that. Um, so I think we'll leave England and Australia there and let's move on to Wales versus Georgia. Um, and sticking with a the theme of tactical naivety, I want to talk about Wales and how they approach this game. Um, so I personally don't think the result was ever in doubt. Um, I know Georgia got within seven points and I know there's a ton of controversy over the final scrum, but Georgia just didn't show enough for me to justify a win. And I think it was more Wales' lack of experience that let Georgia close the gap rather than Georgia working Wales out and getting themselves back into the game. Um, I think Wales knew Georgia's only weapon was really their pack. So while I think the idea to run them around is admirable, I think in this day and age of defences being so good as they are, you're not going to tire teams out quite in the same way that you would have done previously. So I think Wales needed to kick more. I think the start was great, but I think they needed to start turning that big pack and then count off the Georgians' loose kicking game. Um, and I think the early tries seemed to get into the head of the young kind of Welsh or the inexperienced Welsh side and they seem to lose their respect for Georgia too early and try to play off of that whereas they needed to kind of like knuckle down and in that second 20 minute period of the game um, they needed to close it down and they needed to start drilling the ball into the uh, into the corners and making a heavy pack play out from their own foot of the pitch post half time they absolutely needed to do that now I know they lost for East Priestland and Bigger came in like Priestland moved to the to fullback when Williams went off but I don't think that should have changed uh, the outcome of that 20 minutes. And I think they allowed Georgia to play in that 20 minutes and use their pack and not turn them. And, and by not turning them, that, that caused a problem. Um, but I think ultimately Wales had too much for them. I think the subs coming on, Falatau, Wynne Jones, made enough of a difference to probably just right now, yes, let's talk about that scrum. And there's a load of controversy about it but ultimately it's difficult to it's difficult to tell um i like analysis to focus on what you can and can't control in the game and this comes down to decisions off the pitch now it's it looks very dubious absolutely um but there are there are two ways to look at it. you can look at it and you can say it's dubious and you can focus purely on that but you can also look at why it went uncontested uncontested and you can figure out you know, five or six different reasons or, or ways where it was legit. So I've, I, I think ultimately we're never going to know. I think the only people who are ever going to know are the Wales coaching team. Um, and I, you would hope that World Rugby will follow up and there'll be an investigation, um, some discussion with all the officials to make sure nothing illegal actually happens. But I, you know, I don't think there's any point in going over and over it. Um, the outcome is what it is. Um, Georgia still had a chance to win that game. Um and, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, I don't think they had enough to do it. I, I even with even if the scrum had gone full, I don't think they would have got a pushover try. I just think at that stage, the, um, you know, the backs to the wall mentality would have kicked in. And I think they would have been, I think they would have just come up short. I just don't think Georgia had that mental tenacity to kind of just get over. I think. What uh, Haig's done with them is fantastic. I think they're a really good side. I think they're borderline tier one, but they need to start 
you know, they need to start putting together performances that justify winning those games rather than just nicking a game at the end or potentially, you know, being in a position to nick a game at the end. So I don't think uh, I don't think there can be too many complaints about the result. I do understand the controversy around the scrum and, and absolutely people have a right to question it and be disappointed or at least want to know what went on, but I don't think ultimately it did actually cost them the game. Um yes, maybe that's a bit of a controversial opinion, but that's what it is. <laughs> um so yeah, uh, finally let's get on to Scotland versus New Zealand. Um, I'm getting on a bit short on time, so I'm going to fly through this one a little bit. Um, I think it was the best game of the weekend. I think Scotland continued to play fantastic, attractive running rugby. And where they fell off against Samoa with intensity and things like that, um, they upped it considerably this week. Um I think it's really, what's really interesting is traditionally Scotland have always been a team that play on passion. Uh, if you look back to their performances in the 90s and all their really big performances, they're always kind of, you know, the underlying uh, facts in all of these is that they come out absolutely fired up, ready to play. Now, what I thought was interesting here is Scotland don't seem to be reliant on that at the moment. Um, so they came out and they... Traditionally, they'll come out, they'll go mental for the first 20 minutes and then they'll lose pace when that intensity doesn't get them to where they need. Um, but this time, when they don't lose, when they don't get into the position they want to be in, they don't lose that intensity, they don't lose their pace, and they don't lose their shape in attack and defence. And I think that's really, really interesting where previously they would have struggled to kind of maintain their shape after 20, 30 minutes and it loosens up. Yes, a little bit of that happened in the second half, but there are reasons for that that aren't to do with uh, the intensity of the first 20 minutes kind of going off. Um, yeah, I, I understand that New Zealand were missing a couple of key players um, and they also have a couple of players that are struggling for form. And I'll come back to that in a bit, actually. I want to talk about Kieran Reid. Um, conversely, I, that back free unit coupled with the 13 of Jones of Scotland continues to me to be one of the best attacking units in the world um, up against one of the best attacking units in the world um, Hogg was again absolutely wonderful um, and seeing how he plays this, the boot he's got on him the way he attacks the line um, again it's so disappointing that he wasn't able to feature in the test series for the Lions um, like I know his early form tour wasn't great, but look at how he's playing now and then think about a back three containing Hogg at 15 with maybe Williams on the wing or Daly on the other wing or Watson and then Jonathan Davis at 13 and uh, and, and then Farrell at 12 able to hit him out the back with the passes that he, similar passes that he gets to Finn Russell. I mean, it just it would have been sensational to have seen that unit work. Um, excuse me. So yeah, I think moving on to New Zealand, I think they played really aggressively. Um, they definitely pushed the game line, played a lot of ball off the top, um, with Barrett bringing the ball right up over the game line and then trying to release power runners like Williams and Ione. Um, they were definitely targeting Finn Russell in defence. And um, this comes back to what I was talking about, them losing their shape. So um, Dunbar, when Dunbar goes off, uh, early in the second half, I think, and Peter Horn comes on. 
their attack, New Zealand's attack changed from targeting Russell to targeting both those channels. They suddenly had two channels that they could attack down rather than just just the one. Um, and the tries, I don't think it's any coincidence that the tries came after Dunbar went off. And I think that shows how much he brings to uh, Scotland's defensive formation and like his physical, but also his voice and organisation. And I think if you look at Barrett's try, Williams attacks Russell. He's made, you know, Russell's unable to make a physical dominant tackle. So he gets through the contact. He's able to get the offload to uh, McKenzie and McKenzie offloads or passes to Barrett. So, you know, it's a specific ploy to come down that that channel. Um, and that try was scored when the All Blacks were reduced to 14. So there was definitely a, there was a, concerted effort to target Russell's channel but I don't think that's anything we anything new um I think New Zealand were missing a couple of players obviously and I think um a couple of out form and Kieran Reid's quite an interesting one here um I think he looks tired and uh whilst there's no question that the guy's still a fantastic player he doesn't seem to have quite the same impact and influence on the team now I think there's a couple of reasons for that I think a um, he's slightly out of form, but I also think his role has changed within the team. Um, he's not playing as wide as he used to do. So you've got guys like Fafita who've come in who are young, powerful, fast, and far more effective in the wider channels. Cody Taylor, Fafita. So I think Reed's role has changed from being that kind of almost link man forward in the wider channels to kind of a lot more kind of off the, the grunt around the, the breakdown middle of the field. Um, so I think we see less of him because of that. Um, and I think that maybe gives the impression that he's slightly out of form because his role has changed so drastically. And we saw that with uh, Richie McCaw um, when uh, different <clears throat> different people came in, when they had Liam Messam at six, his his role slightly changed to a more carrying role. And, you know, or, you know, as things changed, um, people's roles within the team changed. And I think Reed has changed a little bit there. Um Let's come back to Scotland and talk about their attack pattern. I think it's really uh, it's really nice what they're doing. It's it's very simple one, one or two or three close hit ups, and then they come quite wide. They Dunbar um, is a powerful guy and he holds the midfield, and that allows Russell to play out the back to Hogg, who's coming around the corner, and that out the back to Hogg it allows Hogg to pick where he's going to attack the line, um, and it's very very effective. Um, finally. Uh, Let's talk about the slapdown from Reed. It looks bad and it looks cynical. Um, but the Scottish decision after that to go for a scrum, personally, I wouldn't have done that. I think uh, New Zealand are down to 14 at that point. Um, like, I get I get why. Seven on... Eight on seven, you want to back yourself. But I would have taken the points. And, and obviously, this is in hindsight and... It's easy to do so. I, I think it would have been good to take the points, get the ball back with 10 minutes to play or almost you know, seven minutes to play and then attack New Zealand again. And, you know, we saw Hogg make a fantastic break right at the end. But I think that would have given... I think the points would have brought them within a score and then they could have really, really gone for it. So it's, maybe it was the wrong decision. Maybe it wasn't. I personally would like to have seen them uh, take the points, receive the kickoff and then go for it. Now, obviously, hindsight's very... Uh, very easy and it's difficult to criticise them for the decision they did take but I think that's where the game well, I think clearly that's where the game was lost for them uh, by losing that scrum um, and New Zealand being able to clear the lines with only 14 men um, so yeah that's pretty much it on Scotland I think it was a 
definitely the best game of the weekend and obviously disappointing for Scotland to have lost but I think they're playing really good rugby and I think they're in a very good place and I think come the um, Six Nations they're going to be a real force um, so Ireland versus Fiji and France versus South Africa in all honesty I've only seen highlights of these two games so I'm not in a massive position to comment on them I think Fiji seemed to play well against the second string Ireland I thought they'd maybe fall off early second half but it seems you know, it, it, it's good to see teams like Fiji, Samoa and Georgia being able to keep pace in the later stages of the game and pushing teams right to the end. Tier 1 teams you know, are having to actually work for these wins, which is brilliant for rugby. Um, it's positive for like the global game and it shows that the 2019 team, where these teams have had really good preparation, um, isn't going to be a foregone conclusion. There's going to be some big upsets, I think. Um, you know, it's, So, yeah, fine. I think it was... I think the... Um, Fiji, Fiji did well and there's not really much more to say about that um, South Africa versus France there's hard to see any improvement in either side really um, yeah and I think that's pretty much it I think both coaches need surely on their way out I can't think Gutsy's going to weather this we already know Erasmus is back and likely to take over but I think that was the death knell for him uh, Nuvez maybe they'll hold faith with him through to the Six Nations but I just don't think they're I don't know whether he can make up that ground if he has a good Six Nations obviously he's safe but whether or not he can make up that ground between now and then I, I don't know um, I think this French team is exciting I think they're going to develop in something I'm just not sure Novez is the guy to to take them through um, so yeah so predictions for next week uh, I think England should beat Samoa by around 10 points um, I think there'll be a lot of changes in there, so it won't be um, it won't be a full strength England. But I guess we'll see. I think Wales are going to get done by the All Blacks, and I think it could, with all their injuries, I think it could be quite a painful game for them. I think last game of the tour, New Zealand don't go off tour until they're off tour, so I think they will come and they'll want to enjoy their final final game. And I think it could be a bad one for Wales. I think Scotland have to beat Australia. They need to back up their summer performances. Um, I think Australia are quite going to be quite down after the England game. I think a lot of it's going to be how they recover from that loss. So whether or not um, they can beat Scott, I think it's more a question of can Australia beat Scotland. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think Scotland have got this one, and I think they need it uh, after losing to the All Blacks. I think they need to beat it now. Whether or not they can get up after disappointment, such a close loss, rather than the hammering. Australia, um, I guess maybe that will be the difference. Uh, Ireland will beat Argentina comfortably, I would imagine. I haven't seen anything from Argentina. Um, I think they're far more cohesive, but I just think uh, I think the Irish backs are far more dangerous than the Argentines. I think that will be the difference. The, the back row of uh, Ireland as well. If O'Brien, um, Stander, Mahoney are playing, I, that's a you know, fantastic background I think it's far better than the Argentinian one I think that'll be the difference and I think France are going to absolutely wallop Japan just don't think there's anything uh, anything that Japan have got to bring to this will we'll save them from that um, so that's it for this week uh, thank you for listening it's really appreciated um, please let me know what you think in the comments or any feedback you have anything you want differently if you want me to focus on sort of more specifics of the game or if you want me to focus on a specific game you know just just say so um or if you have any questions um let me know you can either leave them in the comments or you can hit me on twitter at the dead ball area and if you let me have them by monday i can try and squeeze them into the podcast 
And that's it. So see you next time and thanks for listening. Cheers.